Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp. Witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm not going to lie to any of you today. I am bouncing off the walls. My favourite person has finally come on to promote his book. Finally. not It's not taken us a few months because I've been jabbering on about it for a few months. He's finally here and you're finally going to hear about this absolutely fantastic book. And not because I was mentioned in the, in the acknowledgements <laughs> at all. That's not it. That's not it at all. But Chris is going to tell us exactly who we got on. Yeah, I'm kind of sad it's not me now, but um, my book's still oncoming. But instead, we've got uh, Roger Morehouse, who, you know, if you haven't heard Alina mention it before, is a historian who specialises in the Second World War, who's written books such as Killing Hitler, Devil's Allegiance, and Burst of Fight. And he's here to talk about his latest book, The Forger's The Forgotten Story of the Holocaust's Most Audacious Rescue Operation. Roger, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Chris. Thank you. I'm nice to be here. Oh, Chris, we love you. Devil's Alliance, Christopher. Devil's Allegiance. Allegiance. Is, my handwriting. Is, is that your handwriting? It is my handwriting. I'll show you. I can put my camera back on. It is atrocious. <laughs> there is alliance. Yeah, there it is. Devil's Allegiance. Sorry, so my handwriting. That's that's the history of the SS, right there. It's, it's what that is. Yeah. <laughs> I, had to, I was about to go and check my um my bookshelf behind me because I kind of thought to myself, and then you mouthed it, and I was like, <laughs> so I'm not wrong. I'm not wrong. It's okay. No. It's okay. It's always me that's wrong. Devil's Alliance, his Soviet pact. Roger, don't worry. He, he poor Chris mentioned and and uh, uh, pronounced the guest's name wrong on a podcast the other day. So we're doing pretty well that he's pronounced so your name far, correctly. We're okay. Yeah. <laughs> and again, that's my handwriting. I'd... <laughs> this is why I type my prep normally and don't write it down. <laughs> right, we're here to promote I'm your new out. book. Right. Um, yeah. you and I have had long conversations on this book, and yeah. what I did enjoy, and it's something that we did talk about face to face, was how you've interwoven this story into the Holocaust. And it's not just such a cutthroat, straight, boring not that it's boring because it's not boring, mm. but it's kind of standard story about well, Wadosh and his operations and everything around it. I mean. <laughs> I know why, but why did you do that? Why did you incorporate it into a larger story? Um, yeah, I, I mean, it was—it sort of struck me very early on 
with all of these things, when you start a book, you have to sort of think about, it's going to sound quite sort of technical, I suppose, but you have to think about the architecture of the book and, you know, what the narrative arc is. We talk about the narrative arc of the book. Where's it going to go and how's it going to go? It has it going to go there? And it struck me that the, the Wadosh story, which is, I mean, it is fascinating. It's, it's a, it's a real, it's a genuine addition to what we understand about the Holocaust, what we understand about Holocaust rescue and so on. So there's some, there's some real novelty there, not least in the story, you know, the Wadosh story itself, you know, which wasn't really known five years ago. Um, so there's, there's genuinely, genuine novelty there. Which is which is a good thing, but it needs to be put into its wider context to to sort of make it make it make sense properly, and that meant to a degree placing it well certainly placing it within the Holocaust. That was that was an important part, and that uh, essential part of the, my narrative, my job was to place it within the context of the Holocaust. And as the Holocaust develops, because it does develop, it has a dynamic of its own. It's a sort of strangely organic process the way the way it um uh develops and the way it, the way it is is put into practice is is a strangely organic process and then alongside that there is the the international reaction to all of that that's going on what did the outside world know at which point and then what was their reaction and all of that is also important for the story of the wadosh group because they're not operating in isolation they're producing these passports through Broadly between 1941 and 43, um, uh, to to save predominantly Polish Jews from the Holocaust, but it, it it becomes a much bigger issue because you're involving you know Latin American uh, countries, Latin American diplomats, um, the State Department. Um, you know, it, it it becomes a much bigger diplomatic and political issue. Because these passports then, you know, effectively have to be recognised by the countries that have supposedly issued them. No, they haven't, because the Wadosh people have issued them. Um, but that, but that, that feeds into this bigger question of the sort of diplomatic wrangle around, you know, what did we know when, and what did we do about it, and what did we think about it? And that's actually one of the sort of quite, I think, quite shocking aspects of the book, is how reluctant the outside world is. I think I, I think I have to say, with the exception of the Polish government in exile, um, which really really does go into bat for for Europe's Jews, um, and to an astonishing extent, the rest of the world is reacts essentially with indifference to to what's going on, and they can't plead ignorance. You know that we know from the end of '42 pretty much onwards that you know what broadly what's going on that the, 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 the Jews of Europe are being systematically killed. Hold your horses on this one because yeah, okay. yeah. the reason is we're, we're, we are going to talk about it a little bit more in depth because I find that really interesting and how people kind of react to it but I think um, I'm going to let Chris start with the first question unless Chris wants me to go first it's down to him. No it's okay I can go if you want. Um, go for it Chris. So and uh, we'll go after yesterday, we are going the questions in order. We're not going six and back to one. <laughs> uh, yes, Chris was going in some random order <laughs> yesterday's recording. So, yes, Chris, we're going no. from order. But, Roger, you can't answer the first question from your previous book, right? Okay. Okay. No Polish invasion. We're not talking about that, even okay. though that's the book you've written I, about. You know, I can talk about that. That's no, but that's not the point. point. <laughs> right. So Russia and Germany have invaded Poland. 
what happens to the Polish Jews before the Germans start uh, putting them all into ghettos? That's a very good question. I mean, initially, the I mean, it's quite different between the two zones of occupation between the German and Soviet zones. Um, you know, Poland basically ceases to, ceases to exist, as we well know. It's effectively a fourth partition. So referencing the, th the three partitions of the 18th century. Um, so Poland is again wiped from the map. In the German zone of occupation, they sort of split Poland effectively in half um, in the German zone of occupation. The initial target, really, of most of the activity of security services and the SS and everything else is is um, uh, the sort of top ranks of Polish society, so uh, non-Jewish society, as it were. So, you know, sort of MPs and doctors and, and professors and uh, anyone that really had a sort of position in society that could that could be of, of use to the to a possible resistance movement. So they're trying to sort of snuff out any possible resistance to German rule. So initially, they're not targeting Jews necessarily. There are a few atrocities um, carried out. There are massacres of, of, you know, all Poles effectively, but they're not. The important point is to say they're not just targeting Jews straight away. Initially, they're, they're targeting Poles much more consistently than that. And then there's the, the first ghettos are really established at the end of 1939, so pretty quickly. The first one was in Piotr Trybunalski. And then I think that's the only thing that it's famous for is it had the first ghetto. There's also transports from uh, there of Poles to Auschwitz, but nobody knows that beyond like Auschwitz weirdo people. But that's the summer, that's well, the summer of 40 is the first transports to Auschwitz, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the first ghettos are end of 1939 and then into 1940. So Warsaw's comparatively late, it's later in 1940. Um, so, yeah, they start this uh, and start this sort of, if you like, corralling of Jews into into ghettos right across Poland. I mean, there are hundreds of ghettos, big ones, small ones and everything in between. Um, and it's sort of a holding pattern from the from the Nazis mentality, from the German mentality is to is to, you know, if you gather these people together, that you that you don't like and you don't want and you don't think should should be there, um, but they gather them together in pretty shocking conditions, and that's deliberate, right? This is a deliberate effort, effectively, at getting some natural wastage going. You know, to put it bluntly, from a from a German perspective, German perspective, get some natural wastage going, a bit of disease, and hopefully the you know this problem will solve itself before you have to have to solve it. Um, but it's a it's a holding pattern effectively before you you know uh, to keep them in one place work them um, until you decide what you want to do with them in the Soviet zone of occupation it's there's again the same sifting of the population the same targeting of the elite the same thing happens at the same time um, as the, as happening in the German zone there isn't necessarily a targeting of Jews per se but there is a targeting of Jews on a class basis so if you were you know, a rich merchant, for example, you get targeted by the Soviets, regardless of, of your Jewishness. And a lot of Jews actually fell foul of the Soviet Soviet rule in Eastern Poland because they um, they essentially asked to leave. So they didn't particularly want to become part of the Soviet Union, which, of course, is a godless state, an officially atheist state. So although it professes tolerance for all religions and all, you know, all genders and everything else uh, very, very publicly, um, the Soviet Union is is very repressive about religion, particularly. Um, so if you're a if you're an Orthodox, you know, uh, believing Jew in in 1939-40, it's not the best place to be. So lots of them are trying to get out. 
and they try and get out via Romania down to the south. Same same predicament that all um, you know non-Jewish Poles have is to try and escape the escape the Soviet rule. So they go south into Romania, um, or very often north into um, into Lithuania, which of course in the summer of 1940 is also becoming a Soviet state. So that's being annexed by the Soviet Union. Um, and that sort of provides the, the first example that Wadosh Group end up copying, because um, there is a refugee crisis in Lithuania in the summer of 1940, which sort of predates the Holocaust, really, because the Holocaust, you know, as we know, um, really gets going properly in terms of systematic killing of Jews. It, it really gets going in 41 after Operation Barbarossa. Um, so the summer of 1940 obviously is a year earlier. So that the Holocaust is not yet happening, but Jews are still suffering uh, persecution, you know, by the Soviet authorities and by the German authorities. So there's lots of people end up in Lithuania wanting a way out, and they find that way out um, through the Japanese consul in Kaunas, Lithuania. His name was Kuna Sugihara, uh, and he was sort of issuing, actually issu issuing transit visas. He was issuing Japanese transit visas, which was an essential sort of bureaucratic accoutrement. You had to have a transit visa. You had to have an end an end destination to go to for the Soviets to let you travel and let you let you exit the Soviet Union. You couldn't just apply to leave the Soviet Union without having, you know, onward papers. So he was basically ticking that box and giving these people onward papers. And it's thought he he helps, you know, a couple of thousand people survive. So it's quite a remarkable story. But that sort of provided one one of the first um, ideas for the the polls in Switzerland, the Wadosh Group and others, because he he was actually assisted in that by uh, two members of Polish intelligence. So they 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 knew very well what he was doing and how he was doing it. Um, and those are those ideas, I think, sort of fed through into uh, into Polish officialdom as well. Well, you've got the Polish government. It's in exile, roughly about the same time as they obviously they escape in in thirty nine during the invasion. They end up in Britain and there's a whole massive reshuffle. Everything is moving around. Policies are being changed. Things are being sent to consuls. For, so, for example, Poland is for Poles for everyone. doesn't matter who you are, Jewish, etc. blah, blah, blah. One is it. That's it. You're Polish and that's it. What are they doing? Because you've touched on this literally moments ago, but I want to expand on it just a little bit more. I mean, what are they doing with this mass influx of Jewish and non-Jewish refugees? Because you've spoken about, for example, Lithuania, but what's happening in Romania and Hungary and Spain and all of those countries? Yeah, I mean, there, there is. If you if you imagine, you know, Europe um, in the first year of the war, of course, the war is going on, so that's one uh, substantial geopolitical problem, shall we say? But the, you know, uh, much less spectacularly, um, there's a huge refugee crisis going on at the same time. So. Yeah, if you want to imagine Poland kind of explodes in 1939-40, so a lot of people are trying to get out, both Jewish and and, and non-Jewish, and they get out in all directions. So as I said, they get they end up in up in Lithuania, they end up going down into Hungary, they end up going down into Romania, um, and even in 1940, there are there are Polish soldiers who fought alongside the French in the French campaign, um, who. Um, execute a kind of a, a, a fighting withdrawal into Switzerland, um, and actually they they provide you know that's one of the other drivers of what the Wadosh Group end up doing because um, these a few thousand soldiers end up uh, Polish soldiers end up in on Swiss soil. Um, the Swiss, of course, 
wanting to uh, do everything by the letter of the law, as Swiss people tend to do, essentially demanded that they be sent back as POWs um, into France, into German hands. And, you know, the, um, the, the Polish authorities, the Polish diplomats in, in Switzerland uh, told them exactly what that would have meant, because that would have meant uh, them being treated very harshly as Polish POWs. So they argued very strongly and then successfully for those Polish soldiers to be kept on Swiss soil. So this is one of the, again, after Kuna Sugihara, this is one of the, the, the next um, examples which sort of sort of pushes the Wadosh group into, into action. It pushes them into sort of forming, really, uh, and, and sort of getting their ideas together of, of, of how they might assist. Um, but it is, as I was saying, it's, it's not just a sort of a Jewish refugee crisis, although, they, although it is that. It's, it's, it's of everybody. Everybody's moving, and, and particularly Poles. So a lot of them are also turning up in Switzerland and demanding help from, from the Polish uh, authorities there. Um, Wadosh is in post from April of 1940 as, uh, as ambassador. Well, I'll, I'll call him ambassador. He was, he was technically chargé, um, but that was, uh, that was because the Germans put pressure on the Swiss not to recognize him. Um, so that was the compromise. But I, I'll call him ambassador because he had all the rights of an ambassador. So he was there in post from, from uh, spring of 1940. And the group sort of formed through 1940. And that was, those were its sort of formative experiences, as I was saying, um, knowing about uh, Kiyunis Uvihara in, in Kaunas in Lithuania, and then um, dealing with that large influx of Polish soldiers in, in the, the, the summer of 1940 after the, the failed French campaign. Um, so they sort of come together really in that, at the end of 1940 into 41. And with the start of the Holocaust uh, in uh, second half of 1941, then you know they're in place and sort of ready with with these examples of what might be possible uh, to uh, to begin their their forgery operation. So, how does the operation start, and what are they doing to rescue Polish Jews and non-Polish Jews? So it starts, you know, with those examples that I've mentioned. So the the ideas are, uh, are sort of um, sown in that way. The first recipient, we think. Um, was a chap called Leo Weingold, uh, and he was actually, he was Polish Jew, he, he actually came from Bielsko, which um, Alina knows very well, um, and uh, he found himself initially in Lwów, in the Soviet zone of, uh, uh, of occupation of Poland, didn't like it there, wanted to get out, and he, tellingly, he had an elder brother uh, who, was, who was called Saul Weingold, who was in Montreux in Switzerland. Um, working in a yeshiva, a religious school, um, and Saul Weingott was quite well connected in you know, the sort of the Jewish expat community in in Switzerland. So he, he was very well connected with sort of you know charity circles, where they aid circles, where they were collecting um, you know funds and everything else to to aid Polish Jews. So um, that connection, which is kind of you know happenstance, is serendipitous really. Um, results in the first passport being issued, which was issued to um, Leo Weingold, actually in the spring of 1941, so even before the Holocaust is sort of properly underway. And he was told, you know, to, to, to do the same same thing that Kuni Sugihara had been doing the previous year. He was told to go east across the Soviet, across the Soviet Union on the Trans-Siberian Railway, um, get to uh, Japan at the other end, and then he would present himself at the uh, the Polish embassy in in uh, Tokyo, uh, and then he'd be given a new passport. So this was just a way of getting him, getting him out across the Soviet Union. That was the idea. 
Um, so that that was the first example. Um, as it was, actually, Leo Weingort didn't leave. Um, and he's caught up in the Holocaust in the end. It, it does save his life. The passport does save his life. He didn't leave and, as instructed because he wanted to get, you know, having got a passport for himself through his brother, he then wanted to get one for his girlfriend and one for his parents and so on. And he, he sort of wrote back and said, well, OK, that's great. But, you know, can I have some more sort of thing? And that, that fatal delay meant that he was then caught up in the Holocaust itself, but survived thanks to that passport. Temporarily, at least, he's actually he's actually taken sent to Auschwitz and murdered in 1944. Um, but initially, he does survive thanks to that passport. So that was that was sort of the first example. And then once the Holocaust really gets going in this in the second half of 41 um, and into 42, then you get this the word of mouth means that the more and more of these I, I call them applications. Effectively, they're sort of coded letters that arrive from um, Polish Jews who had increasingly been confined to ghettos and camps and everything else in occupied Poland. Um, and they're writing these sort of coded letters to uh, these contact people, people like Saul Weingort and others um, in Switzerland, basically asking for passports. So word of mouth gets out that if you, you know, if you can get hold of a, you know, Latin American, Paraguayan, whatever it is, and, and the word of mouth is always slightly garbled, so it's always slightly wrong. Um, so you get people who are asking for, you know, Uruguayan passports, for example, which you know, nobody actually ever got. It was, it was always, you know, most of them were Paraguayan. So there are lots of sort of um, Chinese whispers going on as well. But they're increasingly they're sort of sending these letters which are, which arrive with the with the Jewish aid agencies in Switzerland who are, have contact with the Wadosh group. And then it poses that question, you know, what are we going to do about this? Right. Um, and the, the people that could supply the passports, that was the, the honorary consuls. And that, that essentially that had to go primarily through the sort of diplomatic channels. So this is where the Wadosh group really comes together. You've got the you've got the um, aid agencies representatives who are the ones that are getting most of those letters. And then you've got the diplomats and then you, and then they have the contact to the, the honorary consul. And the, 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 the one honorary consul that they use the most is a chap called Rudolf Hugli, who was the honorary consul of Paraguay in Switzerland, right? So he's basically willing to sell blank passports to the Wadosh group for a huge fee. I mean, up to about 2,000 Swiss francs, which even then was a lot of money. It's a lot of money now, it was even more then. Um, he was willing to sell blank passports, which they would then fill in. They would take them back to Hoogley, who would stamp and sign them. And essentially, a, 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 um, a notarized copy of that passport would then be sent either by post or by courier would be sent back into occupied Poland to the to the ghetto or the camp or, or wherever it was. Um, so essentially, that was the that was the sort of the 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 way it worked. And they produced up until the operation was stopped, essentially by pressure from the Swiss police. By the time it was stopped at the end of 1943, they reckon they they produced identity documents for for between eight and ten thousand people. It's quite a remarkable effort. Um, primarily Poles. Um, there was a there is a shift. Interesting how it, the German reaction to all of this is quite interesting, which we we can go into as well. So there is a shift later in the war to towards Dutch Jews, but you know, numerically the vast majority of recipients of, of Wadosh papers are are Polish Jews. This is why I'm going to jump in with a question that Chris is going to go. Oh my God, you're going off the rails and control yourself. This is why I want to bring in the reaction to the Holocaust from 
Britain, America, whatnot, you used in your book, actually one of my favourite documents, which I was excited to see, uh, was by Zofia Kosak, The Protest, basically, mm. where you have a right-wing anti-Semite, hated Jews, you know, yet this woman ends up being one of the founding members of the of Jogota, basically the yeah. the 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 agency that saved Jews. Uh, yeah. She she did she end up in a concentration camp as well? I think she did. Yes, I think she did. It's a, she's a remarkable woman. Really. Exactly, and you have, and let me just put it this way: there's a lot of controversy about her, and people oh, don't people yeah. people don't want to talk about. You have talked about her, and I love this. So uh, tell uh, us. Tell us more about Zofia, the organizations, not just the Polish. What what are the Americans doing at this time? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because I think these things, I think there's two things that struck me um, when uh, when you talk about sort of Holocaust scholarship. The first one is I think that, that Jewish experiences tend to be studied and retold in isolation from everything else, from everything else that's going on around them. So the, the, the Jewish experience of the Holocaust is told in isolation from, you know, for example, the experience of their Polish neighbours, their non-Jewish Polish neighbours. Um, and it's quite important to try and make those connections again, which I try and do in the book. And it's much more complicated. It's a much more, you know, it's not a black and white history. Um, it's a much more, you know, a, a million shades of grey history. Um, it's much more interesting. And, and it, it, you know, the the, the um, woman you just mentioned, um, Zofia Kosak, I, I, I always I struggle with her proper name, which is Stutska. Is that right? Stutska. Polish language. Yeah. Welcome to. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Should be um, sounds like I'm going to take my teeth out. So we just call her Sofia Cossack. It's easier. So she's a great example of that complexity, which we have to kind of embrace. I mean, she was right wing conservative, Polish, you know, patriot nationalist um, before the war. She, she'd written books. She'd written articles, essentially argued that, you know, Poland would do well to uh, encourage emigration of its of its Polish populations because she saw them as an obstacle to Poland's you know, development as a nation state. She's not advocating extermination, absolutely not, but she's advocating evacuation of those of those Jews to, you know, send them to Palestine. So, you know, she she would be one that I suppose we would almost imagine would would side with the Nazis once the once the occupation gets going and um and, and the targeting of the Jews gets going. 
But she goes the other way. She says, no, this is what's happening here in terms of this murderous targeting of the Jewish population in occupied Poland is, is morally unacceptable. It's morally unacceptable. It's unacceptable to a Christian. She was a devout Catholic. It's unacceptable to a Christian to stand by and watch this happen, which is a tremendously moral position, considering everything that I've just said and all of her political positions that she had previously espoused. espoused. She says, no, this is not acceptable, and we we cannot be silent in the face of this. And she she writes this um, this note called this protest, as you mentioned, where she basically says, you know, silence is complicity. We can't we can't just keep our heads down, even though you know non-Jewish poles are at, are at you know very similar levels of threat under the German occupation. It's not as though they could sit on their backsides. And, uh, and, you know, uh, watch their Jewish neighbors being deported to the death camps. They were also under extreme threat, um, from the occupation. So, um, she was advocating ordinary Poles going into bat to save their Jewish neighbors. And this, you know, this sentiment crystallizes into the foundation of, of Jagota, the, um, the Jewish aid agency of the Polish underground. Um, so this whole story is much, much more complicated than the sort of black and white, you know, the, the Jewish history almost seen in isolation from everything else that I think I think much of the historiography, historiography tends to view it in that way and study it in that way. You know, I think I think we have to broaden out the perspective uh, and bring in people like her and others and, you know, um, other figures of the of the underground, those that assisted, those perhaps that didn't. Um, there's all that complexity in that in that in those relationships between ordinary Poles and Polish Jews uh, under that uh, German occupation. So that's a much more complex picture than I think we, we traditionally um, tend to view it. The other aspect that's important internationally, to jump away from, come away from that Polish question a little bit, is to look at the international response. And the international response, I think, is really interesting. I, I had kind of assumed, I hadn't really looked at this much before, um, and I, I suppose the assumption that we all often make with a little bit with um, rose-tinted hindsight is that um, to assume that the Western, the Western powers, the Western world were essentially, you know, ready and willing to do something to help Jews in facing the Holocaust. But they were hampered by logistics. They were hampered by um, insufficient knowledge of precisely what was going on. And, uh, you know, that sort of, that, that, that stymied any, any sort of coherent response on behalf of the outside world. And I think what I realized and what I, the way I portray it in the book is that that isn't, that isn't the case. Um, the Western world is, I think, essentially still indifferent to the fate of the Jews of Europe, um, in the Holocaust. And you can see that in a number of examples. I mean, I, I opened the book with the, the Evian Conference of 1938, and I know, you know I can hear people typing as we speak. Um, 1938 is way beyond, you know, before number of years before the start of the Holocaust, but it's actually very, very indicative of the attitudes of the outside world, which is that the Evian Conference gets together uh, as a response to the um, the Jewish refugee crisis that was that was the result of the Anschluss, the occupation of Austria and uh, annexation occupation of Austria. And um, in that conference, big high-level conference in Evian, um, 
you know, the world's diplomats and politicians get together and they basically say, well, I'm not going to do anything about it. I think you should do something about it. And then the other, everyone else, you know, the, the Latin American countries say, well, we're not going to do about it. It's your problem. It's a European problem. So the Europeans should do something. And the Europeans say, well, we, we're all full. We haven't got room for any, any, any immigration. Uh, and everyone bats the problem onto the other guy. And in the end, in the end, nothing is done. Okay. Um, so I use that to open the book because I'm, I'm making that point that, you know, it, it isn't as if the outside world was kind of waiting, um, ready and willing to do something to aid Europe's Jews. They just weren't. And it's not exterminatory anti-Semitism. It's not the same anti-Semitism as the Nazis are practicing. This kind of, you know, this pseudo-scientific, metastasized, biological, murderous Nazism anti-Semitism, which is a different thing. This is old-fashioned anti-Semitism which just kind of wants the Jews to go away and stop being such a problem and, you know, stop moaning and, and kick, kick the can down the road, someone else will deal with it, you know? It's that, it's that sort of much more sort of latent anti-Semitism. Um, but anti-Semitism all the same, right? Um, and, I, and you can see it right into 1944. One of the, one of the worst, one of the most, sho to me, one of the most shocking examples here was, was actually from the US State Department. And the US, the US State Department basically um, didn't want to uh, have anything to do with this passport operation. So this sort of comes to light. What the Wadosh um, people are doing comes to light through 1942. And eventually the Latin American governments get wind that, 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 that their, their passports have been illegally issued or inappropriately issued, unofficially issued um, in Switzerland. And they basically sort of say, well, what are we going to do about this? And they initially say, we're not going to recognize them, which you can understand that's what that would be their natural response. And then there's this sort of flurry of diplomatic traffic. And, and in this, the Poles are really front center. And even Wadosh himself, you know, he sort of appends, appends his own notes to various, various of these diplomatic missives. And the Poles are front center basically in saying, you've got to rethink this because these people are going to get killed, um, are going to be murdered unless you publicly say that you will recognize those passports. Um, and the Latin American governments kind of have a have a bit of a hissy fit, um, and they're actually encouraged in their intransigence by the State Department. So the State Department is saying to them, you know, we don't think you should recognise these passports because you don't know who these people are. They could be they could be spies, um, you know. And and anyway, you know, why should we? Why should the world um, reward people for illegal activity? Right? It's a really kind of narrow-minded view that they take and they're still espousing that into 1944 which i found astonishing right so this kind of this is what i mean but that it belies that idea that the outside world is really ready and willing to help the jews but it couldn't do it because of you know logistics because of strategic concerns or because of ignorance of precisely what was going on none of that is really true it was say they certainly can't claim ignorance Strategic logistic, all right, fair enough, limited by what they could do. But here was a perfect example of something they could have done. They could have got behind this passport scheme and put pressure on the Latin Americans and said, recognize those bloody passports and we could save, you know, thousands of people. And they could have saved thousands of people. And this is what I find is that the, the latter half, I'm getting a bit, I'm getting a bit impassioned here, Lee, as you can see. No, it's good. Keep um, going. Can I poke the bear? This is what I find quite amazing about that sort of the, the, the latter, maybe third of the book, because you've got this sort of twin track narrative. You know, the passports have been made, they've been issued, 
Um, the, the operation has kind of come to an end in the end of 43. And then the last 18 months of the war is, you know, large numbers of as many as 10,000, as to how many were issued, as how many people were issued these passports and papers, um, who have been issued these papers. And the Germans essentially take those people out of the, out of the deportation lines. As soon as you wave your Paraguayan passport, whatever it is, they take you out of the deportation line and they say, oh, you know, here we, hands, we've got another one. And they send you off to Bergen Belsen of all places, Belsen, which is absolutely horrible concentration camp. But it's used as an internment camp for what the Germans call exchange Jews, who are these foreign Jews who are to be exchanged for Germans abroad. So this is where what the Wadosh group are doing, which is to try and put a sort of a, a bureaucratic um, stick in the wheel of you know the, the machinery of the Holocaust. Um, this meshes perfectly with what the Germans want to happen. So they want to have foreign Jews who they're willing to collect up across Europe, foreign Jews that they can trade, they can they can leverage for Germans abroad, right? So they're willing to collect up to 30,000 of these foreign Jews. That's what Himmler says. They end up with about 10,000 Wadosh Jews and other sort of genuine foreign Jews and others who have got false papers. But we can, we can estimate that about 10,000 of those are Wadosh passport holders. A lot of them are sent to Belsen, they're sent elsewhere to Vital as well. And then this sort of, and then this, the last third of the book is this sort of twin track of, on the one hand, the, the, the stories of those individuals who are stuck in somewhere like Belsen and how, how that rapidly through 44 and into 45 becomes an absolute horror show. It's horrific. Conditions in Belsen are absolutely horrific by the end of 44. And if and if it's possible to imagine, they get worse into 1945. Um, and then the, the other track is is this this diplomatic wrestle going on between sort of three cornered diplomatic wrestle between on the one hand the Polish um, diplomats and the government in exile and people like Wadosh who are agitating and 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 messaging anybody anybody who they think can help them. you know the Pan American Congress, the World Jewish Congress, all of these organisations, the Vatican. Saying put pressure on the Latin Americans to rec say that they'll recognise these passports, because otherwise these people are going to get killed. Um, the Latin Americans who are kind of sitting on their hands and not really knowing what to do and feeling slightly offended that you know diplomats in Switzerland have been copying their passports, um, and the State Department saying, well, we don't think you should recognise them because you know this is legal activity and you don't know who these people are; they could be spies, right? So it's, it's this crazy sort of three-way tussle. And all the time, the Germans are kind of looking at this and going, well, are they going to be recognised or not? And all the while are sending more and more batches of these holders of foreign passports to Auschwitz. So it's, it's, an, it's an absolutely tragic story how international sort of bureaucratic propriety uh, got in the way of a, of a serious opportunity to save a large number of lives. So from about 10,000 holders of Wadosh passport pa passports and identity papers at the beginning of 1944, we know, thanks to the work of the Pilecki Institute, we know that upwards, I think it's 850 is the last figure, somewhere around 850. 850 actually survived the war. Potentially between two and 3,000, if we work out, you know, do a statistical exercise, but what we know is about 850. So huge numbers were lost on the way because of that bureaucratic impasse, because 
the world outside didn't know, didn't care, didn't want to deal with the problem. So it's a, it's a, it's a, I think it's a really fascinating story that actually comes back to what you said right at the beginning, Alina. If you blow it out and, and not just focus on the Wadosh operation itself, but you blow it out and you talk about, you know, what does this tell us about the international reaction to the Holocaust? It's actually a really interesting and actually quite damning story. So what happens when it goes wrong for the people carrying the foreign passports? There was there was an incident at the Hotel Polsky, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Hotel Polsky, I mean, it's a, that's an amazing story. I mean, that, that could be a Hollywood film, to be honest. It's, it's an incredible story. So that was set up by the Germans after the, after the liquidation of the Warsaw Ghetto um, in the spring of 1943. They realised pretty swiftly that there are large numbers of Jews still at large, if you like, um, in Warsaw and, you know, out in the area inside beyond the ghetto, living in the ruins of the ghetto as well, some of them hiding in the ruins of the ghetto. So there's still thousands of Jews in Warsaw, even even you know after the liquidation of the ghetto. Um, so they basically, you know, mindful of what I just said, that they have this this idea that you can collect up what they are calling exchange Jews, and they could be utilised. They could be of some use then to the Reich. I mean, an, an ordinary Jew is worth to a, to to Nazi Germany is worth nothing. They're literally vermin um, in the in the in the the, the minds of the Nazis. So. Um, they're fit for nothing except extermination. But as foreign Jews, they could, they're useful. They can be utilised. Um, so they're willing to sort of collect these people up. So they spread the rumour that, the, you know, that foreign uh, foreign holders of foreign passports, Jews holders of foreign passports, um, will be permitted to leave Warsaw. You just have to come and present your papers um, at this the Hotel Polski, which is a large hotel on, on uh, Ulica Druga, um, where they collect them together. And there's of course, there's huge amounts of cynicism and 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 people think saying, well, this can't be this can't be right. This has to be a trap, right? This has to be a trap. Why would you trust these people who, you know, two months ago were slaughtering Jews out of hand in in the in the in the ghetto? Why would we now trust them that they're going to you know allow us to leave? So there's a lot of those very agonised discussions going on and. Actually, the, the, a couple of transports actually leave leave the, the Hotel Polsky uh, and go to um, initially to Paviak and then on to you know like to Vitel and to and to Belsen and so on. So you know, once that has happened, then more and more people come out. And this is and it's often portrayed as you know a sort of a cynical Nazi trap. I think it's much more um, much much more rational than that. That they don't yet know what the end result of that diplomatic wrestle is going to be. So in the meantime, they're going to collect up as many Jews as they can find with foreign papers, right? They might still be of use. If they're not of use, then you've got them, you know, contained wherever it is, and you can deal with them accordingly. So having them, you know, ha having got them out of hiding is a, is a win from a Nazi perspective anyway. So I don't, I don't think it's quite as cynical as some people describe. They just describe it as a sort of a cynical trap, you know, a cynical ploy to get hold of these people. I think they're actually just sort of getting hold of them to then see what happens in terms of, you know, where the exchange due program goes. And a lot of those, a lot of those that are, um, um, you know, rounded up in that process end up in Vittel camp in France, um, and then, and also in Belsen. And Vittel camp is, is, uh, liquidated by the Germans. 
Um, so a lot of them are sent straight to Auschwitz. Thousands of them are sent straight to Auschwitz. So it's certainly the the end result of this is that a Wadosh passport was not a sort of a passport straight to freedom. It was a passport that gave you a chance. It, it allowed you to escape temporarily at least the mechanisms of the Holocaust. And if you were lucky, and if you were physically robust to survive 18 months in Belsen, um, then you had a chance of survival. But it still meant that survival is essentially out of your hands because it's about the diplomats. You know, your fate is being decided in Washington and in Asuncion in Paraguay and in, and in uh, you know, points abroad. It's been decided by diplomats over there as much as it's been decided by, um, you know, the odious commandant of Belsen. Um, but at least, at least those those passports and those identity papers that they produced, it gave those people the possibility of survival, crucially, where prior to that, they wouldn't have had that at all. What I find really interesting is you've written the story, right? So it's out there. This book, what I'm hoping is what it's going to do is allow people to think about their family history. Why am I saying this? So there was an example when I was in Miami last year. The, the Institute opened up the Wadosh List exhibition and I met this lovely old lady who'd emigrated to the US from Poland in 1930, I think it was 38 or something like that. Yeah. And I met her son and her son sat there and he said, you know what's really funny? My Jewish friend, her grandfather or her father, something along the lines, he had like a Paraguayan passport, but they're not Paraguayan. And I'm like, have you maybe considered? Yeah. They're one of those people that got the part. He's like, yeah, that's a big possibility. So there's still so there's so many unknown stories about how many people yeah. you'll be able to touch and keep the story going. That's what I wanted to say, yeah. basically. Uh, that's, it's a hugely important point, um, Alina. And yeah, I mean, this is this is I for me is one of the sort of most important potential consequences of the book. Uh, and let me explain a little bit because the, the the reason that this the wider story hasn't sort of come out until the last five years or so um is that i think there's 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 sort of two two ways by which narratives sort of enter the sort of the you know the holocaust historiography and the first one is through official channels so official documents you know polish government in exile or whoever it is saying this is what we're doing that sort of those documents feed into the the historical narrative when it gets going in the 1950s and 60s um, that that didn't happen, right? Because Poland, of course, in in forty five is is uh, taken over by the Soviets. Process is completed by forty seven, as we know. But the Polish government in exile is left as a sort of a a curious appendage um, of a state that that is run by other people, effectively. So the Polish government government in exile stays in London, stays there until eighty nine. Still has you know, has cabinets. It still has its own governments and presidents and all that. But it's ruling a country that no longer exists, right? So the, all those records, from that sense, were never really looked at in the context of the Holocaust, right? And anyway, what was coming on the official level from Warsaw, from communist Warsaw, was, well, we don't want to give any credit to the pre-war government and the, the, the exile government because those are all nasty capitalists. So we don't talk to them and we don't, we don't publish documents that make them look good, right? So it never gets never gets filtered in. The document documentation never gets filtered in on the official level because of that. 
And then the other way, the other way in which a story gets into the historiography is through personal testimony, right? So in this case, you would have had to have survived the Holocaust, which is a big ask for a start, and then had some had some sort of memoir or something that you'd left behind. And then actually you need to have kind of known where, where this thing had come from. And most of them didn't, right? Because the, the contacts that they had were sort of second and third hand. You just sent off a letter to this guy in Switzerland who then who then passed it on to someone else and it ended up on the desk of of um, Konstanty Rokitsky in, in the in the Polish consulate in in, um, in Bern. You never had any contact with the Welsh group themselves, okay? So you never knew who they were. You never knew what they were doing. And then if you were very lucky, at some point you got a, you got a Paraguayan passport or whatever it was. So all of those people who, you know, you had to survive, you had to have then written, a, you know, written some record of your, your experience. But even if you fulfilled those two, you didn't know who had supplied it. You didn't know where it had come from. You knew nothing about it. So it's just kind of an empty question floating in your narrative. So for those two reasons, the Wadosh group never really got into the narrative until now. So. Yeah, I mean, to go back to your question, potentially there are large numbers, I mean, thousands of people, potentially, thousands of people, who are the descendants of people who survived the Holocaust on Wadosh papers and never knew where that passport came from. They never thought about it. They never, they never sort of, quote, it was just a weird thing, you know. And, then, and now we can, you know, anyone that has a sort of Paraguayan passport in their if you like, in their family history, as part of the, the survival story of the Holocaust, there's a very, very good chance that, that that's where it's come from. It's come from the Wadosh group in Switzerland. And the idea that this book is going to go out there and hopefully some of those people are going to come forward and say, this fills a big gap in our history. A very good example is Lord Finkelstein, Danny Finkelstein, who writes for the Times, is in the, in the House of Lords. Um, he is a perfect example of this because his mother was the, the daughter of um, Alfred Wiener, who established the Wiener Library in London. Brilliant resource for Holocaust study. And there, as a family, that he had got them out of Germany, gone to gone to Holland uh, before the war, and he was then travelling around to the US and to the UK and so on. And by the time the Germans invade Holland in 1940, he's he's already out of the country. So they're left effectively to fend for themselves. Um, and he, one thing he does, he is able to do is to is to pr procure these passports for them. So he gets them Paraguayan passports. Long story short, Danny Finkelstein's mother, Miriam Vina, survives as a young woman. She survives the Holocaust. Actually, is exchanged. She ends up going to um, being sent to Switzerland to be exchanged for Germans, Germans from abroad, uh, in January of 1945. So she survives the Holocaust as a young woman. And this Paraguayan passport was just a sort of a, it was a, it was a, it was an answer that never, never had a question. So they never knew where it came from. Um, it was never talked about post-war. You know, there was a, there was an awful lot of, of, you know, profound silences in families after World War II. It didn't matter which side you were on. Nobody tended to talk about what had just, what they'd just been through. So by the time, you know, families do talk about it, the older generation have already gone. So, you know, they never knew where that Paraguayan passport came from. And I remember seeing a tweet by um, Danny Finkelstein a few years ago now where um, he was telling the story of his mother's survival and he mentions this Paraguayan passport. And someone flagged this to me and said, you might want to jump on this. And I messaged Danny straight away and I said, I said, do you know where this came from? He said, no, I haven't got a clue. 
And I said, right, we have to have a coffee. And we met a couple of days later, we had a coffee and I told him the story of the, of the, of the Wadosh group and, and all of that and, and filled in that huge gap that prior to that in his family history was just an enormous unknown. And my great hope, as I say, is that there are other examples like that where there's a there's a, you know this mythical Paraguayan passport is is part of the the family history from the Holocaust, which has never been fleshed out. They never knew where it came from. They never knew the the um, you know the story behind it. And now we can we can actually start to 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 fill that gap for them. And I think that's a I think that's a really profoundly important thing to be able to do. Before we wrap, I just want to say I love the book. It's well written. It's a great story. It's an unknown story, and I think people definitely should go and buy it. It was out yesterday, which is uh, yesterday is the 10th, isn't it? Yes, because today is the 11th, That's today is Friday. Uh, so it's out, but Chris is going to wrap. Yeah, I mean, well, it does sound like it's a really important book, and it's, it's going to open up a, a lot of discussion. Could you, well, Alina's already told us when it's out, so uh, could you just remind everyone of the, of the title and where they can get it from? Yeah, of course. Uh, the title is The Forgers. The Forgotten Story of the Holocaust's Most Audacious Rescue Operation. It's out in the UK with Bodley Head on the 10th of August, which was yesterday. And it's out in the US with Basic Books with the same title, uh, with Basic Books out in the middle of October. So those are the two editions we've got so far. It's coming out in Poland as well with Snack sometime in 2024. Um, so all good bookshops and the dreaded Amazon and all the rest. But uh, yeah, as, as, uh, as we've all said, please go out and buy one yes and we'll get it on the history hack bookshop as well uh, bookshop.org and that way the podcast gets a small slice of money and you get a bigger slice of money that jeff bezos can't then spend on uh, model ships or whatever he's spending it on this week very good very good thank you so much for joining us roger my absolute pleasure alina anytime our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book this is just a small taster as a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.